Dora Rodriguez escaped the death squads in El Salvador during the Civil War in the 1980s. On her journey to the United States, her group was abandoned in the Sonoran Desert south of Tucson for five days. Thirteen people died, and Rodriguez barely survived. Since then, she's devoted her life to social work and to helping people in the desert. In this podcast, Rodriguez talks about the migrant resource center called Casa de la Esperanza, which she helped open in Sasebe, Sonora last year. She also talks about her own history as an asylum seeker and the current situation at the border with Title 42 and other policies endangering asylum seekers' lives. And she talks about how she continues to do humanitarian work, which can take a physical and emotional toll year after year. There are some days that are painful, she says. There are tears, but what keeps me going is to see the people behind me doing this work, and I know I'm not alone. When did you first open Casa de la Esperanza in Sasebe, and why did you decide that they needed a resource center there? Uh, we opened in May 1st of 2021 after being in the area for about um, eight months because uh, due to Title 42, uh, we were having with that town, which is only like 2,500 locals that live there. And um, it's a town that has no transportation, public transportation, not even for the locals no hospitals, no shelters for our migrants and, or asylum seekers. It pretty much has no resources. So we, uh, were in, we were invited to assist. They were really having a crisis because as soon as the pandemic started in March 2020, uh, when it was declared, you know, um, the government also, uh, Border Patrol, was told that they have to um, practice Title 42, which is nothing to do with immigration. It's a public health, um, you know, a situation. And it was very good and easy for Border Patrol in that area to pretty much just round up everybody that was crossing and without any process, without any chance to tell their story, without any dual process, anything, they run them up and send them back to this very small town with no resources. So when I visited Sasabe the very first time in September 17 or 2020, I discovered that it was a crisis in there. A town, they were receiving 150 migrants a day. And uh, the Grupo Beta, which is a government office in Mexico that assists migrants uh, around the country, the director asked us for help because he said it's been quite a few months that this has been going on and we don't have the resources to take care of these people. So due to that, you know, we saw the need and we act on it. And I say we because it's not only me. Uh, it is another woman 
at Gale, and also it is um, other organizations, sisters' organizations, uh, the Tucson Samaritans, um, Green Valley Samaritans in Tucson, Humane Voters, they are great supporters, No More Death. So all these organizations, you know, came out and said, we're going to help you. Whatever you are going to do there, because I brought that idea that we're not only needed to be bringing um, 700 bags of food a week that we did for almost eight months, but we needed a place. We needed a, a safe place for these people. And I always said it's a, it have to be space to bring their dignity back because most of our migrants that were returned have been in the desert for days, for days, without shower, without eating good food. Their feet were destroyed, most of them with blisters. Uh, many people with medical issues like diabetic, high blood pressures, dehydration. So we needed a place to triage these people. And we have a shower at the center that we opened in May 1st. And it was just a transformation in beauty. Because I was there when I wouldn't receive tons of people that would have just come into the center with their belongings and trash bags. And, you know, the fact that they were able to relax and take a shower. Beautiful women from Guatemala with the long, black, beautiful hair would come out from the shower and just start combing their hair. It was just a, a beautiful transformation for me to witness so we've been in there for a while now. <laughs> and can you talk about what it was like um, trying to open the resource center in, in Sasa Bay? How long did that take? And what did you do in the meantime to provide services uh, to the people that were being deported or who were arriving? Uh, we continue to provide services in the streets. And uh, we got in there like the middle of September. So the weather was changing, and by December, it was freezing. But we were cold outside, delivering donations and tables. We used to go three times a week or more, if we could, to the Sasabe, from Tucson, Arizona, to the Sasabe, Sonora. And uh, we set up our tables. We would bring coffee and coffee pots, nice and hot. And it just brings me so much... Um, you know, to remember this, it's very rough, very hard to remember and process that because what we saw was so painful. And to see our migrants, we're talking about children, little ones from five years old, three years old with their moms, and most of them natives, uh, indigenous from Guatemala. And sometimes they didn't even speak the language. And to see men come back in the situation they did and to hug them and just and we were in the middle of the pandemic you know so not many people were out there out and about doing this humanitarian work but that didn't stop me I say these people really needs our help and uh, when you would just have a man in front of you crying like a child freezing freezing because they took away everything he owned and only had one t-shirt on him. And so I remember that so clearly. So we, uh, we did that and all the time until May in the process of 
uh, opening the center, we were able to talk to the mayor of the town, uh, Marta, and I, you know, I, the director of Grupos Beta said, would you like to open a place here, a center? And I said, of course I do, but I don't have the money to open or run a center. And he says, well, is really needed. And I say, you know what? Money is not going to be a problem. I have friends. I have people that cares about this issue and I know I'm going to get help. And oh my gosh, it happens. And so we, I had a conversation with the mayor of the town and proposed her, well, our idea of opening uh, not a shelter, but a resource center, not only for migrants and asylum seekers, but also for the community. And I think that was my catch because I said this community needs also a place where people can call their place, their center to have activities. You guys can celebrate baptisms, quinceañeras, whatever you want to do. And she loved that idea. And she said, well, write me a proposal and we'll review it and I'll let you know. So it was a lot of like back and forth, back and forth and writing. And my daughter, Anna, who is my right hand with the organization, with Salva Vision, I said, okay, we have to write something that will attract these authorities in this town. And uh, it's a town that is, um, as we know, is <laughs> dominated too by the organized crime. So it's very... Uh, you have to work very carefully in there. You have to really know what you're doing, I think. I didn't know what I was doing, but I thought, well, I'm going to just work along the locals. I'm going to follow their guide, what they tell me to do, and respect. Because my thing was, okay, I am not the boss. I am not coming in here because I own this. I just want to do this as a gift for the community and helping to relieve uh, the pain to see so many migrants and not being able to help them. So that's how Casa de la Esperanza came alive. And we was six months of uh, preparing, getting donations, private donors. We put it out there. People responded. It was excitement. And um, it was beautiful. And then we rented the place where our center is and Humane Borders which is a local organization in Tucson that is incredible. I've been around for more than 20 years, putting water too in the desert. They told us, don't worry about the rent, we'll cover it. And they have covered the rent for the center. And um, so, yeah, Casa Esperanza opened May 1st of 2021. Yeah. I think that's just so smart to include the community from the very beginning in the process. Um, what type of needs are you seeing there now? Who's coming to the resource center? And how has that population changed since you opened in 2021 up to now? Well, you know, we um, we also did a lot of uh, advocacy with the media in putting this out to the light because it was not okay. What was happening in Sasabe was criminal. It was just not okay. I mean, you just don't take hundreds and hundreds of people from all over, not not only Mexican nationalities, but from Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, all these countries, and dumping them in there. And where they don't even have transportation. So these people were everywhere in that town. They did not know where to go after that. 
they didn't even know where they were deported. So we did a lot of work with that the, to the point that we brought big newspapers. You know, we brought the uh, New York Times. They got interested in the story. They thought also that it was not okay. And they came in incredible because almost like four days later after the newspaper came out, um, the numbers changed of deportations. It was just like, what? This is powerful, I guess, because the numbers went from 150 plus to 30 to 40 people, just so suddenly. And then about three months ago, we haven't had large numbers of deportations. We get once in a while, we get a, a few. Uh, a week ago, we got a family of five, and they had a little dog with them. They were bringing their little puppy with them because the mother who was arrested and deported back to Sasabe, she has been in this country for 27 years, and her son is in the Navy. Her son is in the service in the United States, and he got deported. So it was very hard for us to see this uh, family situation. So we're still serving people who is being deported in small numbers, um, we hope that we never get those large numbers because even with the resource center, we just don't have the resources to take care of them. And then um, it is dangerous. It's a very, very dangerous area for our people. On Monday, this Monday of this month, I just had a Guatemalan man that got jumped and was almost killed in the town of Sasabe. And thank goodness we were able to get him out, and the Grupo Beta transported him to Nogales, and he's now in the hospital. So things are happening, and I am so thankful that the center is there because the women who are there every day running this place are local women who are getting paid with our donations. We're able to pay them to be there at the center. And I love that because it has brought jobs. It has brought um, light to the community that we have a group of embroidery women, who local women, who made these beautiful tote bags. We sell them and we pay them back the money that, that they deserve. And they tell us because of this program, they have been able to save. One of them bought a little car. They, they spend the money in the community. So it has been great to open the resource center. Yeah. I'm so so glad to hear that. I, I visited with you at the resource center, and I was uh, so impressed by it. And Sasabe really is a very isolated town. Um, with not a lot around it. And I believe uh, at the high point of Title 42, people were being expelled in the middle of the night, right? And with nowhere to go, uh, and they were sleeping in like the, the plaza in, in the middle of town. Um, maybe if you could describe a little bit more what the town is like and and uh, if it's changed at all or how it's being changed, I guess, by migration. Um, well, I, I didn't know that town 
for many years, and I don't know why, because I have been in every border town around, and for some reason I had never gone to Sasove. Because I remember every time I asked, people will say, oh, there's nothing in there. There's nothing in there. There's nothing to go for. Uh, but I'm glad I did. And it has changed. I think it, it has bring more um, humanity, I will say, and more awareness of who our migrants are, who our asylum seekers are. I think it has, because people seem to be more empathetic of these people, you know, because in the very beginning, they were angry, they were bothered by them, because they'll say, oh, they're sleeping in our porches, they're just in the plaza, they're taking over that city. I mean, you're talking about thousands a month the people coming and going there and um i think that town has changed like i said uh we haven't reached all the families in sasave but we haven't reached a good number of families that are glad and thankful that the center is operating and um i think the situation with our our, our migrants it's hard, and it's harsh, and it's dangerous. And what it bubbles my mind is how you live in this in your house, but next door to you is a stash house. It's a warehouse where are they have children, they have women, they have men, but it's their town, you know. And the local people feel safe, and they always they always tell me as long as we don't have another cartel coming, we're okay, because we know that once they're here. So, okay, <laughs> this is your town, we respect your town, and yeah. So it's a delicate negotiation, right? Because all of this cartel business and migration business is happening alongside the town's everyday life, like you said, and you have to sort of weave yourself in there and uh, not... Uh, you know, stick your head out, right? Or, or get into any kind of trouble with the organized criminal groups. Um, I imagine that must be pretty challenging from day to day. Uh, yes, it is challenging. And I, like I say, you know, I am not there now every day because that's not my intention. Um, but we have been approached by people there to ask us who we are or the women who work with us, they said, oh, no, Dorita, they know who you are. <laughs> and I said, okay, I hope they're in a good way. And But it, it's, it can be so unpredictable. I mean, I just do not trust these people at all. I do not trust the uh, people that run these uh, cells of organized crime. So I have to be very careful. Like you said, I don't have to be like, oh, I am the director and I do this. No, 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 no. I never, ever. And if somebody come and ask, I tell all the women, I am just a volunteer. I am here just to support your work. And this is what we do. Because we have to, I know that they, are, they know the head of that area, the cartel that run that area. They know. And they tell me. Oh, he knows you, and he knows. He says that they're happy that you guys are here, but they just don't want you to be taking pictures in town. So we've been told what we can do and what we cannot do already. 
And so you, you described, I guess, people being expelled and deported in the middle of the night. And Title 42 is still in place. And I, I guess you said you're seeing a lot less people now. Are people still being expelled under Title 42? Or are you mostly seeing people who are being deported, like the family that you described, uh, who have lived in the United States for many, many years? Um, yeah, but Title 42, we're still getting uh, migrants that uh, expel because of Title 42. Um, and even this mother who I described that she's been here for 27 years, Title 42 applied to her. Otherwise, they would have given her a chance to talk to a lawyer. And she said, I have a lawyer. I already had an, I have an attorney, but they did not give me a chance to say anything. So it, they applied it to her too. Wow, that's really, really awful. Um, can you talk about Salva Vision, your your nonprofit, and and your history as well as a migrant from El Salvador, and how you came through the desert, and how you arrived to Tucson and ended up staying here, and then doing this wonderful humanitarian work and opening this migrant resource center? Um, yes, I mean everything uh, started when I was 19 years old, and I left my country due to the civil war that was happening at that time. And I chose how I graduated from high school. I had dreams. I loved my country. I never thought I was going to leave my family, my mother behind, my siblings, my friends, my culture, everything. And um, But I had to because it was life or death. I... If I wouldn't leave, I would really think that I wouldn't be here because, um, you know, I was the right uh, profile for the government at that time. I had just graduated. I was young. I was verbal. I always speak out. I was a person. That's what I wanted to become a social worker because I thought that was the field that would give me the platform to fight for justice. And yeah, I, and then I was enrolled in a group, a church with the Marinol sisters who were prosecuted by the government also. So they knew that I had some ties with them. Uh, so I left and yeah, I tried three times. One time I went to Yuma and I got arrested and sent back. And then I tried again and I was arrested in Tijuana. And then the third time in the same year, because it was in 1980, in the same year, I was uh, in a group with Salvadorians in the desert of Organ Pipe in um, Arizona. Is Lukeville is the port of entry, but Sonoita is the town in Mexico where they had us uh, the night that they crossed us. And yeah, it was um, a very tragic story because, you know, we were left behind by the smugglers. And it's just the same, the same horror that happened, the same lies. And, you know, in my group, there were three sisters. They were so happy to come to America and see their mom that they haven't seen for five years. And and it's still very hard for me to remember that because they were only 12, 14, and 16. And I was like a big sister for them. 
And we developed a friendship. I didn't know them in my country, but during the trip, we developed a very close relationship, and we were protecting each other. And they all three died around me, and I couldn't do anything to help them. And um, so at the end of our tragedy, and then we were left in the desert for five days with no water and no food. We ran out of food, and the... The heat was excruciating that year. It was like 115. And then in the ground, it hit at least 120, they told us. All I remember is, what well, if this is hell, I am already in hell. Because it was horrible. It's horrible. You just feel that minute by minute you're dying, you're done. And then you start thinking that everything is water around you. And um, by the end of, of our journey, uh, 13 people, well, 14 died because one woman was pregnant. So, you know, I, I have that history and that journey. And due to that, I came to Tucson, which I was welcomed beautifully by everyone. People were so kind, I remember. And I was uh, welcomed by the beginnings of the sanctuary movement. I was lucky. I was lucky to meet John Five, which right now he's still involved, <laughs> and he is the father of the. It's not even an organization. It's more than that, a movement, you know. So uh, I started just getting involved, and by 1984, I had my first asylum seeker family living in my house, and they lived with me for a whole year, and then I have not stopped. But um, on and off, you know, I have done different things in immigration and helping our people. But in 2014, I started getting involved nonstop, and I started talking more about my story because, as I said, my story was so tragic and painful, and it was very hard to talk about. So it took me years to open up. My children grew up, and they didn't know the details of my story until, like, I'll say seven, eight years ago. And they always says, Mom, we didn't know that about you. And I said, that's okay. You know, I was not ready. But uh, when things start getting really tough politically-wise in 2015, I thought I I have a story that might help to make some change, to help people know who we really are, who our migrants are, who we as a migrant are. Because I came and I embraced the welcoming from this country. And, you know, I went to school. I worked as a social worker, my dream that I had for years in different areas. So I serve very well. I have my children who are also productive in this country. So when that narrative came out, they were all criminals and rapists and no good, and it's not okay to stay quiet. And then I said, okay, I have to talk. So that's what I'm here, and I do this every day. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. Um... And, I mean, 40 years has passed since the tragedy happened in the desert where the people who traveled with you died and you survived. 
and and you've never left the place where this tragedy occurred, which is amazing and incredible because that must take a lot of uh, emotional and spiritual fortitude. How do you keep doing the work that you do, and and does it get difficult? And how do you how do you keep going? You know, um, it gets difficult. It gets hard. There are some days where it, it is painful. It's a lot of uh, tears. Uh, but uh, th- what it keeps me going is to see the of people behind me doing this work. And I always tell myself, you're not alone in this. And I call a friend or I call a uh, another brother or sister, I called them in the fight. <laughs> and I said, I'm really having a hard time with this. Because we have to process that. It is, and you know, and just my trauma is there. It come back. But I think I also have built this, I hope it's resiliency. I have built this, uh, I don't know, I hope it's a protection and one day it's not going to just hit me. You know, that I... Uh, I'm able to, to to see, to hear the stories, to hug my brother and sister out in the desert and see their pain. And I just wanna I, I just wanna tell them I know I've been there. I done it. And I know why are you doing this? So it gets difficult. But um it's it's good to have a lot of uh, friends around you and family that loves you. You know, and I, I feel that. I feel the love from people that works along with me. I feel the love of my family, my husband, that now supports me. So we just keep going. Every day is a new day. Every day. <laughs> right. And and uh, what, what kind of services are you providing now? Because there's also a medical clinic too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you could just talk a little bit about the the types of services that you're providing now at uh, Casa de la Esperanza. Well, um, it is great. It has grown so much and is still growing. Uh, so we have a team uh, of doctors, retired doctors from Tucson, and nurses from Colorado, from snowbirds that they call themselves, and they come and provide services. So they heard that the town of Sasavit only has one doctor for the whole community of more than 2,500 people, one person. So uh, they, from the past year, they have been going to Sasavit twice a month and provide medical services, which is great. Uh, and then we partnership with uh, uh, an organization that's called CHAC, and they are helping us to get local women to get scholarship to go and become nurses so they can stay in the town and help the town too. So that that's going great. And then we have um, the group of embroidery that they always telling you the women that almost a year now they have become their hobby just to come every Wednesday afternoon. They come to the center, they drink coffee, they talk. There's been some cases where it's more like a support group, I think, because it's been cases of domestic abuse that have been displayed, and they process that, they talk, they protect each other. So it's incredible. And then now the last wonderful thing that is happening is the, a group that is called Veterans for Peace and um, the SOA Watch, which is a large organization, had adapt us 
and they are going to build a playground. Two beautiful big playgrounds in the town of Sasave, Sonora, where our children don't have any positive outlet. They don't have anything where to go. So my fear is that because it's a border town and we know what's happened in border towns, that they're getting recruited at the age of 12 years old by the organized crime to work with them. Uh, so we're going to build two playgrounds and hopefully a library. So we are so excited about that. <laughs> so excited. That is amazing. And um, I can't wait to see the playgrounds and go back down there and see how much everything has grown. Thank you so much, Dora, for sharing your story and, and your work. And um, I wish you just a lot of luck and hugs. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, I'm known by that. Uh, everybody says, oh, yeah, Dora loves to hug. <laughs> you know, one last thing is funny because during the pandemic, it was very hard for us to provide humanitarian aid in any border. I was going to the border of Nogales, Sonora, and delivering um, humanitarian aid because we knew people is there in the streets uh, from a mask to sanitizer to food to shoes. And then I was going also to Sasabe and in Agua Prieta, also in Sonoyita, we were supporting a shelter. So we were everywhere. And thank goodness, never happened. I had always my mask and then never happened. So I was thinking, okay, I never got it the whole year and a half there before the shots came out, you know, the injections. I said, okay, I'm good. Well, one day my son came in. He had he he was positive. He came in, he got gave it to us. So I'm like, okay, I'm glad I didn't get it at the border. So people wouldn't say, oh, our migrants are bringing the virus because it wasn't. Not for me, at least. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Dora, for talking to the Border Chronicle. And take care, okay? Thank you. And thank you for all that you do. And everyone, 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 please subscribe. This is amazing. <laughs> thank you. All right, everybody. Listen to Dora. Dora Rodriguez. Thank you. Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This interview was edited by me, Lily Clark. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It'll help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border reporting on our website, theborderchronicle.com.